I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me. We're going to be looking at Ephesians, the fifth chapter, and we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. This is a three-part series I'm doing, and today is the second part, which is going to focus on the role of husbands. And then two weeks from now, I'll do the third part in this series. So please pray for me as I prepare for each of these Sundays. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, we're going to look at the 21st verse, and then we're going to look at the 25th through the 30th verses. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open, and I encourage you to follow along as we move together through the passage. Once you've found your place, please look up. Let's ask God to help us. Father, please don't let us do this by ourselves. Help us, dear God, to understand and help us to apply what we learned today and what we're reminded of today. Father, we have an epidemic situation in marriages in our country. And you have the solution to that, Lord, if we would just hear and then be obedient. So I ask your blessing now on what we're about to read and what we're about to do. In Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you have heard the names James and Marjorie Landis. I read a story about them about a month ago, and I printed it out and set it aside for today. And then it came back up on my computer again this week, and I reread the story, and then I went to some other sources and read it over and over again. And I want to tell you about James and Marjorie. It's a touching story. James was a pilot in the Second World War. After the war ended and he was going to college, he met a young lady named Marjorie. 1946, they got married. He finished college and he went to work for a steel company in Pennsylvania, spent most of his career there, and they spent 65 years together as husband and wife. A couple of years before Marjorie died, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And finally, for her best interest, they placed her in an assisted living facility. The staff of that facility said that every day, Jim would come to that retirement facility and sit with his wife Every day he would hold her hand. Every day he would comfort her and pray for her. And that went on day after day after day for several years. And then one afternoon when he was at the retirement facility, sitting holding his beloved's hand, he said some words, and I want to read them to you. He said... It's okay. I love you. We had many good years together. I will see you real soon. Marjorie died. Marjorie was 87 years old. Jim died one hour and 20 minutes later. 
I did some research on that, and I don't think I learned anything conclusive, but I learned some interesting theories. One of the theories is that if a man and woman are married for a lifetime, that as they are close together physically, as they lay in a bed side by side, that the heart rate of one is influenced by the heart rate of another. Isn't that a fascinating thought? And that very often when one dies, the other dies very quickly. Linda and I have a neighbor, and that was equally true of our neighbors. Um, They had been married for over 60 years, and when... She died, he told me he had no reason to live, which is not true, but in his mind, emotionally, he was sharing how he felt, and very soon after that, my friend Buck died also. I want to point out a couple of very obvious things. God has a plan. It's his plan that we get married. It is his plan, and please hear this, that we become inseparable until death. My goodness, what's happened in our country? What's happened in the Christian church? I think we've forgotten what God has ordained for us. We say so often in wedding ceremonies and other times, God is the one who's created the institution of marriage, and he's done it for the welfare and happiness of mankind. And we're living a contradiction to that. I read a statistic just in the last week or so that said that we now have more people going into a relationship and living together who are not married than we have getting married. Think through that statistic for a moment. There are also a great many people who get married and get divorces. Not 50% of the people. Not 50% of the marriages. But it's a rising number that is now over 40%. And that ought to concern us and concern us about our kids and our grandkids. God didn't intend divorce. He says in the scriptures that he hated and hates divorce. You know, there are a third group of folks. There are those who never get married but live together and Those who get married and get divorces, and you know the third group, which is equally sad? Those who get married and are miserable. And there are a lot of those folks around. You've met them. You know some of them. What's wrong? What's happened to us? I have a very simple answer to that. We're not obedient to what God has told us to do in a marriage. God hasn't failed. The institution hasn't failed. Guess what? We're the ones that are failing. And all of us who have been married or are married can think back at times. Linda, this is a public confession. Who can think back at times and we know when we have not done what Scripture teaches. I want to read a passage to you. And today we're going to focus on husbands. And how God wants us to live and what the blessing is that comes from being a biblical husband. I want you to look with me at the scriptures. I'm reading from Ephesians, the fifth chapter. 
I started two weeks ago with the 21st verse, and I want to repeat it to you, and then the 25th through 30th. Listen as God speaks to us. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless." So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. When you look at that 21st verse, please be reminded that subjection is something that both the wife and the husband are both to do. And we're to do it because it's what God wants us to do. And he has assigned a role to each of us. And for our marriages to be successful, we follow his paradigm. We do it his way and the blessing comes. And when we ignore it or when we reject his design for marriage... Nothing good comes from that. That's where the brokenness in marriage comes from. I want to point out one other thing about mutual subjection. If your mate is not doing what Scripture says, you can't fix it. So quit trying. But I have a really good idea. You know what that is? Fix yourself. Work on yourself. Do something about how you're living and how you're relating to your mate. And amazing things happen when you do that. When you submit yourself to the teaching of Scripture because you love Jesus and you allow that to be the motivating factor in your marriage, very often your mate changes, not because you told him to, not because you pointed out all their faults to him, but because you're being obedient. That's what mutual subjection is. Told you two weeks ago, fellas, get ready. Here we go. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. If you've been in the church any time at all and you've been to Sunday school class, you know that there are a multitude of words, five actually, Greek words that we translate L-O-V-E. We can't break it out the way the Greeks do. One of the words that was being used on the streets in Jerusalem and throughout the Mediterranean basin when our Lord Jesus was alive and walking on this earth was the word eros. We hear the word, English word, erotic. But the word eros means so simply, and it's not the word for love in this passage or any passage in Scripture. God never uses that word. He never encourages us to love someone with an erotic love. And the reason is, eros is a self-centered love. When you love someone with an eros kind of love, you're saying, I love you because of what you are going to do for me. I love you 
because you make me happy. I love you because of the way you dress or the way you do or the way you handle yourself. I love you because of what's important to you. But who's the recipient of all that? We're saying, I love you because you are performing for me and it pleases me. Now, you know what the problem with that is? I cannot tell you how many times I've heard well-intentioned people say, I have fallen out of love. And I'll say, why? They say, well, you know, I just don't like the person anymore. They just don't do what I want them to do. I'm not happy in this marriage. Well, if you set yourself up believing that you're going to be pleased and that you're to have an eros kind of love and your mate's job is to make you happy, you set yourself up for failure. With the exception of the men in this room, no man is completely perfect. I'm trying to get you ready, guys. It's the truth. So if our expectation is that our wife is going to be perfect, that's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So what we do is we look to Scripture and say, well, if that's the case, then how am I to live my life? What am I to do? And the Lord is very clear in it. He says to us, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Have you ever thought through how much Christ has loved the church? Before the foundation of the world, God chose those that would be his. What a disappointment. Uniformly, all of his creation said, we don't want you to be our God. We want to be our own God. We want to do it our own way. God being a just God, put him out of the garden. He's a righteous God. They're unrighteous. They cannot coexist. So justly, he put them out of his presence. He prohibited them from doing anything that would put them back into his presence because they were not righteous. So he puts a fierce angel at the entrance to the gate. And I know a lot of people who've tried to take that angel on over the years and have failed. I know a lot of people who have spent their whole life trying to live a righteous life to appease the wrath of God that they might have a place eternally with him and they have failed. That's not a possibility. But you know what our God has done? He's reached out into the darkness and he said, I want you to be mine. He sent his Holy Spirit and he's quickened our spirit. He's given us the capacity to understand things we weren't even interested in before. Romans tells us we don't even seek after God. But he has reached into us and he has by grace changed that. And he's bringing us into a relationship day by day, having been saved by faith, that should be a growing, dynamic relationship. It doesn't grow uniformly, does it? Wouldn't it be nice if it did? But every now and then you've got to take a step or two backward to move forward again, and that seems to be when we grow the most. Well, what he has done is he's put his Holy Spirit in us because he loves us, And his Holy Spirit is now saying, come be obedient to Scripture. 
Come experience the blessing that God has for you through the rest of this life and the blessing he will have eternally for you. And he says the way that's to happen is you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You're to give yourself away. You're to take the things that are so important to you, fellows, and put them aside and say, what's important in my wife's life? What will bring pleasure to her? What will make her happy? How can I help her to live the days that God has given her to the fullest of her personal enjoyment? And when I'm talking about enjoyment, I'm not talking about just the frills or I'm talking about the things that really matter in life. But surrendering ourselves as Christ surrendered himself, that is the model for us as husbands. It's all a matter of giving, not of receiving. I've met a lot of men along the way, and I suppose on occasion I've done this, and you have also, who've tried to dominate our wives. It's not our place to do that. That's something between them and God. They're not to serve us. Together we're to serve him. We get all that mixed up, and when we get it mixed up, it starts to cause our marriages to disintegrate before our very eyes. God had something else in mind, and certainly in domination, What he has done is he has literally commissioned all of us who are husbands to a spiritual task that most guys never even think about. And he makes it so clear in beautiful language. I want you to look with me at the 26th and 27th verses. He says, so that he might sanctify her. This is the role of the husband cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. I want to tell you about that verse. When I first studied Ephesians, I didn't have a clue what that meant. I went into the pastorate and I didn't have a clue what that meant. I read what some people said. I looked at those words that he might sanctify her. You know what it means to sanctify? It means to set aside for a special and a holy use. And I got to thinking, well, how does a man do that for his wife? But that's our role. We're to look at our wife and say, she's somebody special that God has put into my life, and I have a spiritual function in her life if I'm willing to accept the responsibility and willing to let the Holy Spirit work through me to use me the way God wants me to be used. That's what sanctification is in this. He says, so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. I love the imagery. What has Jesus done for us? He just washed you off on the outside? When you went into a Jewish temple or synagogue, they had a mizvah, which is a pool of water outside, and you would step into it before you'd ever get into the temple or synagogue, and they'd take water and they would pour it over your head, symbolically washing you clean, and then you could go in to worship God. But it's more than just the external. It's more than just the symbolic. What God has done through the power of his Holy Spirit and by the application of the blood of Jesus Christ, 
He has cleansed us on the outside and the inside. It's not like being poured with water from a pitcher. It's like standing under a shower and being completely engulfed so that you are cleansed by the power of God. And folks, if you haven't experienced that, please say something to me. Say something to one of our elders. And let's talk about it. Let let us open the word with you and talk through it. I just want you to know that that cleansing is internal and external. And that's the example for husbands. We're to create an environment for our wives that is a spiritual environment. Meaning we are to know the word of God so we know how to behave. So we create that environment for our wife. We are to walk in the spirit and give freedom to the spirit so that our wife can benefit from that. Being washed by water with the word. It's a word-centered experience. Fellas, if you leave it to your wife to train your kids biblically, or if you leave it to the kids to come to Sunday school, you're missing the boat. It's not what God wants. He wants us to be growing spiritually in our knowledge of the word and for us to grow to the point that we influence our wives and our whole family just by our very presence. Do you find that challenging? I do. And if you do, that's good. He says that we are to be washed like water pouring us by the word. You know why? Jesus is coming again. You all know that? He is coming again. You know what's going to happen when he first comes? When you get through with the trumpet and the proclamation, he's going to say, okay, kids, let's get together. And we're going to have a thing called judgment day. And he's going to bring the living and the dead together. He's going to give us resurrected bodies And he's going to say, now let's take an accounting. And he's going to say, husbands, what did you do with the opportunity I gave you in marriage? And guys, we're going to be held accountable. It is a commission. God has said, this is what I expect you to do in marriage. I put you together. I gave you a mutual attraction. I caused you to fall in love. And here's what you should have been doing. What have you done with it? Now, don't you think it'd be wise of us to really become diligent about doing something about it now instead of waiting until Jesus comes again? You see, we can conform our lives to Scripture if we choose to. He goes on to say to us down the 28th through 30th verses, There's something really good coming, fellas. If you're obedient to me, here's what's going to happen. He says, you ought to love your wife. I love that word, ought. He doesn't say you must or you should or you will. He says, you ought to do this. Now, when I would say to my children, you ought to do this, you know what I meant? I expect you to do it. Isn't that what you mean? You ought to do this. You ought to get up right now and you ought to go do it. And you expect them to do it. But you're not making them. You're giving them a sense of free will in that they consciously make a decision and they get to live with the consequences of that decision, be they good or be they not good. 
And so the Lord is saying us, to us, you ought to love your wives selflessly like Christ has loved the church. And then he goes on to say, he who loves his own wife loves himself. Go into a bookstore sometime and just look around and you'll see an unbelievable number of books on self-esteem. We have so many people in our society who are very, very fragile emotionally, who can be cracked with just a little pressure, who struggle with anxiety and struggle with all sorts of depression. And the bottom line is they don't love themselves. I've heard people say, you know, I'd just sooner die than keep living. Well, they don't love themselves and haven't found God's purpose in their life. What Paul is saying to us on behalf of the Lord is to have self-esteem, you've got to do what God wants you to do. And when you love your wife like Christ loved the church, your self-esteem will be built up and you will have peace with your creator. And if you do not do that, you will not have that kind of internal lasting peace and you'll have all kinds of conflict. And oftentimes you and I won't be able to trace the conflict back to our disobedience in our marriage. But Paul quite clearly puts them in the same context. You know what Tuesday is? Ladies, what's Tuesday? Just happen to know that. That's a secular holiday. We don't officially observe it in the church. Let me tell you about Valentine's Day. If you are a wise man, Remembering that when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Don't forget Tuesday, guys. Now, sometimes you may have been raised in a home, and I know lots of folks like this, where husbands did not acknowledge any holiday, not birthdays, not Valentine's Day. I've even known of those who didn't give gifts at Christmas. That all needs to be rethought by those folks. For our God is the giver of gifts. And we have a role model. The question is, what kind of gift do you give when you start giving gifts? It shouldn't have anything to do with money. It shouldn't have anything to do with that kind of value. I remember a time when Linda and I didn't have a lot of money. And we wanted to spend some time together. And weren't even in a position really to go out and have dinner. And she and I went over to a park in Daytona Beach, Florida. And she and I sat on top of a picnic table and held hands and talked. One of the best dates we ever had. So it's not about money. That's not what Valentine's Day is all about. You know what it's all about? Gentlemen, do you know where your wife likes to eat? You ought to know better than anybody else. You ought to be an authority on what she enjoys. Take her where she likes to go. There's a restaurant my wife likes to go to occasionally that I don't even like to walk in the door. 
But if she asks me, guess what? I'm going to say to her Tuesday, honey, where would you like to go? And if she gives me the name of that restaurant, I'm going to smile. And sacrificially, I'm going to go. What does she enjoy? Any of you married to chocoholics? Honey, I have a Hershey bar for you. And I'll give it to you after church, not Tuesday, okay? You see, we know what they enjoy. We know what makes life really meaningful for them. But I'll tell you what you can give your wife that's more important than any of that. You can look her in the eyes and you can say to her, I love you. And I'll try to be selfless in that love. And I will protect you. And I will provide for you. Until death do us part. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it'd be such a shame if